We are um, going to welcome tonight uh, Roy. <laughs> multi-purpose Roy here. <laughs> person, speaker, timing. Um, and I probably won't take questions because after I speak, usually there are no questions. My name is Roy. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. I want to uh, <laughs> thank uh, Sonia for asking me to speak at the last minute. I uh, just want to say, let's get the... I don't have my pictures. I kind of systematically destroyed most of my fat pictures. There may be some little yearbook pictures somewhere. Well, I got thrown out of school for drinking anyway, but I was a school fat guy with glasses. And I never liked the way I looked, but to just get the statistics out of the way, my top weight was 280-something. That's over 100 pounds of where I am now. I've gained and lost 80 pounds at least three times. I've been on all the diets. Uh, I usually go through the food log. Uh, my first diet was amphetamines, which drove me up the wall because I like to uh, eat a huge meal and kind of just mellow out. You know, eat a wild boar and digest it like a python type of thing. And uh, so I didn't like amphetamines, but uh, I dropped 80 pounds on that thing. I got into compulsive exercising, running up and down the stairs. My parents had this apartment that had two levels of these stairs. Gained it all back. Second diet was the Stillman diet, the uh, nothing but protein diet, where you flushed out your kidneys with water. I was I lost 80 pounds on that one. Got into compulsive exercise, and I was at the University of Miami by this time. Um, I got into well. Let me just say that uh, I'm also alcoholic. Uh, food was actually my first drug. I was a fat kid since the age of seven. I didn't pick up alcohol to the ripe old age of 12, but uh, I, it's always difficult to be an alcoholic and compulsive overeater because I, you know, every time I'd go on these diets, I was craving booze, and I thought light beer was the answer for a while, but uh, you get up to about 12, 16 ounce cans, and that's a lot of calories, and then I uh, tried to be a vegetarian, live on vodka and mashed potatoes. <laughs> that didn't work. I, don't, you know, I gained weight on that diet, but anyway... So it was a tr- I was really troubling to be a, a, an alcoholic and a compulsive reader. That Stillman diet, I mean, I got into the, that compulsive exercising. I call myself an exercise bulimic. It's just, it's, the thing about being a compulsive reader, let me just put a thing on because I'm cold. It's kind of nippy tonight. The thing about being a compulsive reader is uh, if you go on diets, diets actually work, but the problem is they only work on one level, which is the physical level. So every time I lose the weight, you know, I did, wasn't dealing with the emotions that I was eating over, which is primarily fear, insecurity, low self-esteem, the usual suspects. And, and I wasn't dealing with a spiritual void. Okay, So I, I'd go on these crazy diets, I'd lose the weight, but the obsession was still there. And the funny thing about these diets, and believe me, I'm a, I'm a real experienced dieter, every time the weight would come back, it would come back faster. I'd always gain a few more pounds than the previous. It's kind of like the stock market. You know, you're breaking out the new highs on the charts, you know. And uh, it would come back. I'd always gain more weight. And the obsession, uh, it says in the big book that I will chase to the case of insanity and death somehow the illusion that I can control this thing. And I never could control it. The third diet, I, I mean, I was at the University of Miami, 
I would I got into compulsive exercising. I was literally I was I was a member of the judo club. I was lifting weights. I was swimming about a mile at a clip at the University of Miami pool, and I was running. And all part of this, you know, somehow it'll be different thing. I remember at like one point I got up to like 12 miles in my in Miami, 90 degree heat, 90 degree humidity, in in the middle of the day when nobody was running. This is way back then. Actually, I don't want to date myself. <laughs> I go back, and uh, it was before the running craze fully hit. You know, people were just looked like they were nuts, and I wasn't even doing a scenic run. It was like around the practice uh, soccer field at the University of Miami which is just basically a rectangle. So I'm running 12 miles like a, a rat in a maze. You know, like, this time it'll be different. This time I won't gain the weight. I guess that's what I thought. I mean, this time I won't want to eat. I'll get down to a magic number. This time I'll find a magic food plan. I won't gain the weight back. This time it'll be different. Right? Well, guess what? I, I left the University of Miami, moved back to my native New Jersey, to my native city of Trenton, New Jersey, a town of which it could be said if you wanted to give the world an enema stick it in Trenton. But uh, back in Trenton, I gained weight back. So now I'm up in the north, you know, and I gained, I'm back up to 280-something. I'm out of control. And uh, the third big diet I went on was the pregnant hormone shot, hormone shots diet. I don't know if you remember now. Some of these diets go out of fancy and then they come back in. But this one was bizarre. I remember this thin, grinning osteopath. He had two clinics going full-time, one in Pennsylvania, one in Jersey. And all these fat people would be lined up for these shots, you know. And you pay him 25 bucks. He weighs you and he takes your blood pressure, gives you this placebo horseshit HCG. It was human chorionic gonadotropin. I'll never forget it. And uh, he gives you this shot, and he's grinning, and he was thin. And he was collecting money, you know, and he had these two clinics working for this guy. I made a fortune. If, if I wasn't in this program, that's how I'd try to make a living and start a bad diet. And I'm lying out with most of these fat women, but some fat men, you know. And I'm on, and he, then he puts you on like a 500 calorie a day diet. So obviously, you could be shoot yourself up with anything, and you're going to lose weight on this thing, you know. And guess, and I got into compulsive exercising up north, so I joined a gym. And now I go from running in 90 degree heat, 90 degree humidity, to where I'm running behind a snow plow with a ski mask on. I got two little eyes, you know, sticking out, and the snowflakes are coming down, and the snow plow's clearing the way, you know, and I'm running in the morning. And, like, the guy comes out on his porch, you know, in a coat to get his paper, you know, and he looks at me out there, sees me behind a snow plow. I thought I was like Rocky or something. So, yeah, yeah, you know, he figured I was on the Olympic team or something. I mean, who the hell else but a compulsive overeater is running behind a snow plow in the middle of winter? And you know something? I lost it again. I lost the 80 pounds again. DC diets work, especially 500 calorie a day diets. And, uh, you know, it was just absurd. I mean, I stopped taking the silly shots, but I started losing the weight with the compulsive exercise. Anyway, I came down, uh, back down to Florida. I, can't, I never could stand cold weather. And to this day, I hate cold weather. And uh, in Miami, I started hitting my bottom. I had a head-on collision. The alcohol stuff. Well, actually, uh, oh, you speak for cane? Oh, I don't know what to do. All right, so, all right, well, give me another shot next week or something. Anyway, um, this time, what the hell happened? Oh, yeah. 
I got on the liquid protein diet. I don't know if you remember that one. This stuff is awful. You, if you live on liquid protein, you don't eat any solid food. And like I, I lost like 30 pounds in, in 30 days. There was no problem. I mean, these diets work. You know? The problem is I had absolutely no blood sugar. I remember I was supposed to get like a tennis lesson from this guy, you know, just, and I couldn't lift the racket. I had no blood sugar, you know, and I was sitting in Miami, and it was a Friday night, and all my friends I knew were down in the coconut grove getting high, getting loaded, chasing the women, and I'm sitting in this apartment, you know, uh, and uh, I hadn't had solid food in 30 days. And to say that I was hungry, angry, lonely, and tired was a new thing. I was so tired I couldn't lift the tennis racket. I was sitting alone in this apartment. Hungry is not the word. And boy, I, and I was pissed off. You know, and I was trying to hold out till Monday. Monday, I will weigh a magic number. I will stop this insanity. I will eat food again, you know, and I'll be okay, you know. And I couldn't hold out till Monday. So I, I remember literally having to hold on to the wall, you know, to break the diet. Because I'd stand up and I'd be dizzy, you know. But I held on to the wall. I made it to my car. I made it around the corner to Dayland. The shopping center was right around the corner of my apartment. And I bought two cases of wine and two pizzas. And I wound up in jail that night. So anyway, that's, that's how you break a diet when you're compulsive or you're an alcoholic combined. So... That led to uh, my the end of my drinking, you know, which lasted actually lasted a few more months. Uh, but it also led to my coming into AA in 1978, and I haven't had a drink since my first AA meeting. But uh, you know, you come in one 12-step program. Well, anyway, the first thing the gurus in AA said is, "Kid, if you feel like taking a drink, have something sweet like a candy bar or some ice cream." I said, these guys are brilliant, you know? <laughs> so, so I started eating. And like my childhood, my first disease was compulsive reading, you know, like since the age of seven. And I, I gained 30 pounds the first month I was sober. I was out of control with the food. Eight months sober, I was on my knees praying. I was out of state. I was actually in Vermont for a summer school thing. I said, God, I was on my knees, you know? I'm eight months sober, out of control from this. And when I get back to Miami, i got to get to this OA. Because you, know, you hear about other 12-step programs. You come in one, and you hear about other ones, you know. I don't know why I didn't just didn't go to OA in Vermont. You know, I guess it was, it was beyond me or something. It was going to me or something. But um, so I get back to Miami, I'm going to OA. So I get back to Miami. I come into OA. I don't think there was a, uh, a man at my first meeting. There may have been one other, but I didn't notice it. It was a bit... I remember, I was a lot younger and, and uh, a lot, uh, you know, I was a feisty young buck then. But uh, it looked like all these matronly condo commandos from North Miami Beach were there. And like, oh, these women, you know, what are they doing with my big buck? I had a very, very strange attitude, you know, kind of call alcoholic arrogance. But my first sponsor, she became a, a Edie, says, she sees me saying the serenity prayer. She says, how do you know the serenity prayer? I said, well, I'm in the head. You know, Bill Wilson's long-lost grandson with eight months of sobriety. So uh, she goes, well, uh, my name's Edie. I'm a compulsive reader. I used to weigh whatever. I've lost 90 pounds and kept it off for five years, she says. And that gets my attention. So, so that's why we mention our weight loss and show our pictures if we have them here. So 90 pounds and kept it off for five years. Okay. She says, I'll be your sponsor. Okay, you know. So, in those days, this is 1978, you know, I remember 
it was nothing but gray sheet. I mean, OA was like, they had a food plan, it came on a gray sheet. You had to write 30 written assignments. I think you had to look up compulsive controlled and uh, something or other and write about it. And you had these uh, assignments. And then they, you get 30 days of abstinence and they'd step you up and they'd give you a plant. That's what they used to do in Florida anyway. And, uh, and I mean, eating. I mean, let me put it this way. Flexibility was just a little too advanced a concept for Edie at the time. They'd all been on gray sheet, you know, and that meant four ounces of protein, two cups of whatever, you know, rabbit food, which I hated, no milk in my coffee. I had to call her if I wanted to change anything on the food plan. I'd, like, call her up and say, Edie, I'd rather eat a pear than an apple today. And she said, nah, nah, too much sugar in the pear. She never would let me eat a pear. I mean, she was just passing on to me exactly what was given to her. You know, I'm not knocking her. I mean, that was just the mentality, you know. And, like, she didn't realize, like, I'm 20 years younger than then. And I'm still running, like, six miles a day and, you know, trying to deal with the obsession on the physical level. And she's putting me on the exact same food plan that all the rest of them are on. Well, it's white-knuckle abstinence. I mean, I hung in there for about two weeks. And it wasn't pleasant, folks. She wouldn't let me put milk in my coffee. To this day, I don't, I don't, I can't stand black coffee. I put milk in my coffee. But she wouldn't let me put milk in my coffee. She wouldn't let me eat a pear. She had me on a gray sheet. And it was like this, you know. And I'm off to France, you know, ostensibly to study languages. Languages kind of hobby mine. But it really, looking back on it, all the cube, as the French say, looking back on it, it is, uh, it was really running from my problems. You know, I'm eight months sober, two weeks absent, and I'm basically pretty crazy. I've done, you know, kind of preliminary step work with my first sponsor, made rotten hell. But, um, in AA. But, uh, I forgive him though he's dead, and he's under his image as a dead person. Um, so I'm on the way to France, you know, and Edie says, uh, well, you know, well, uh, the guys in A were taking bets that I'd get drunk, but there was plenty of A in Paris. They had no way of knowing that, of course. And there was some OA, too. So Edie says, pack brown bag of lunch. You know, I called in a diabetic meal to the airlines, because uh, I'll let you do that, you know, special meal. But she said, you better be careful. Brown bag and abstinent lunch. Now, hey, I'm too cool to eat brown bag and lunches, you know. So I call up the airline, diabetic meal, no problem. Get to the airport, check and counter diabetic meal, no problem. Get on the stewardess diabetic meal, no problem. Get in my seat. All right, so I haven't had, well, I, I ate breakfast about 6 a.m. I'm on the plane. So now it's about 2 p.m., 2 in the afternoon. Now, I'm on gray sheet for two weeks, so I've got some sort of starvation hunger going. Plus, I've got normal hunger. I haven't eaten breakfast at six. Comes time to pass out the, the diabetic meals, no diabetic meals. So they put something in front of me that wasn't gray sheet. I mean, it wasn't even that bad. Well, there was maybe a cupcake. I don't know what the hell was on there, but it was like bread, potatoes, you know, stuff I hadn't seen in two weeks, you know. And I was starving, and I took the first bite, the compulsive bite, and it's true, you know, the first compulsive bite on the plane going to France, and boy, that bread tasted good and that potatoes. And so I went for the cupcake or whatever, you know, the airplane food. And I'm on out of control on the way to Paris with two weeks in OA, you know. So I land in Paris to study languages, and I'm out of control with the food. 
And I'm going to the OA meeting in Paris. I'm going to plenty of AA there. It's no problem. I started two groups last time I was there mm-hmm. six years ago. But um, the OA group in Paris was the shakiest, flakiest OA group that ever existed at the time. You know, this woman, uh, Morris, said she started OA there. She was a, a French doctor, gynecologist, did a residency in Atlanta, found a program, and took it back to France. She was French. But she spoke English very well. So she started English-speaking OA. There was no French speaking. So in OA is me, Bob, 11 years sober and is thrown up 11 times a day. Uh, we had an anorexic whose parents were psychiatrists, and they just couldn't figure out with all their medical knowledge and training how to spawn this lunatic who's starving herself off the planet. So, you know, the overeaters are binging, the bulimics are puking, the anorexics are starving. I'm sitting there with eight months of sobriety pontificating about the steps, you know, and quoting from the 12 and 12. And meanwhile, I can't stop eating. And the food's coming on, the clothes are getting tight, you know. I'm out of my mind, you know. So, I'm down in Aix-en-Provence, where I helped start the first day group there, by the way, in French. But I'm down in Exodus Language School, and I used to go up to Paris on the Midnight Express from Marseille to uh, go to meetings. And uh, I'm, what am I binging on in France, like with all this five-star Michelin food. I'm binging on basically French can- French mounds bars, bread and cheese. That was good bread and good cheese. But it's basically nothing I don't think I could have gotten here, but I'm binging my brains out. I mean, my, my French roommates will watch me make breakfast. I buy like a pan ordinaire, which is not the baguette, the thin one. A pan looks like a small log. Like the family eats a week on this. I take that pan and I cut it in half I take a wheel of coulommiers, which a French family would take about a week to go through, and I lather it up with French butter, good butter, and I put that coulommiers down, and I eat this thing for breakfast, and they'd look at me, they thought I was crazy. And I wouldn't drink wine, which I thought was even crazy, because I'm in a egg, you know? And they'd say, uh, don't you want a little wine with this cheese you know, in French? No, 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 it's... Fishy water is just fine, you know. I'm eating, so I'm lathering up the log and eating. I remember one time, uh, one time walking out of the boulangerie of French bakery, and I had like a pan sticking out of the bag, you know. And I'm walking to my apartment, and I look over my shoulder, and I'm walking to my apartment, and by the time I got into the apartment, I gnawed the thing down the bag a little, like a beaver, you know. So anyway, uh, I was out of control, and uh, it wasn't. I wasn't a happy camper. I wasn't a happy camper. So now, I'm going to talk about my bottom now. I'm going to talk about my bottom, which is funny, and I always talk about this because it is kind of remarkable. I'm in Marseille, ready to take the Midnight Express up to Paris. I'm looking at a French Mounds bar. Okay, these call them bounty bars, but it basically it's the same as a mouse bar. It's chocolate-covered coconut, you know, with all the sugar and stuff. I'm looking at this thing. I've eaten about five of them, so I'm sugared up to here, you know. And, I, it was, it, and I'm waiting for the Midnight Express. And I'm like, do you want this thing more than you want abstinence? 
you know, because I had kind of dim memories of Gracie and Absence. Believe me, they weren't particularly pleasant memories, but at least I knew there were people who were absent somewhere, back in Miami anyway, and, you know, somehow they managed to, like, stop eating compulsively. So I knew that it was possible, but I had this goddamn, I'd already eaten five, you know. I wish I could tell you, like, I threw it away because I was so spiritual, but I, basically I just didn't want to hassle in French with the the French kiosk, you know, petty bourgeois in French can be a little bit nippy, you know, and I didn't want to hassle her to get my money back. She probably would have given it to me. I probably wasn't as confident in my French as I am now, but uh, I just said, well, fuck it, you know, I've eaten five. You know how compulsive these are. I've eaten five, so what the hell? <laughs> Down the hatch, right? The old drinking name? Down the hatch. Anyway, but I said to myself, now this, the reason this is important is it was the moment of truth. I said to myself, you know, when I get up in Paris tomorrow, I want to be absent. I really did. I got on the, the train, the uh, Midnight Express, I slipped on the couchette, and I never did sleep too well on those things, but I get in Paris, arrive in the morning, I said, I just want to be absent today. And actually, you know, not even today, I, w I was in the moment. I will say this, it's kind of... I just wanted to get some breakfast accident. You know, so I go to the brasserie, I order two softball eggs, hold the bread, you know, because I was a binge food, give me coffee, put milk in the coffee. Screw you, Edie, you're not friends. So, you know, I put milk in the coffee, you know, I eat the two softball eggs, I eat the apple for dessert. It was an accident, you know, fairly normal accident breakfast on a losing accident. I get through breakfast. I got through breakfast accident. It was just amazing to me because I'd just been eating for weeks, you know. And uh, I said, well, if I can just get through lunch, I have just So I get to the brasserie, a little meat, a little salad, hold the bread, no sauce, you know, hold this, hold that, give me an apple, milk in the coffee, screw you, Evie. You know, I could eat my little apple for dessert. Just get through dinner. So I have the same thing. I have an accident at dinner. So now I'm going to the Monday night meeting at St. Michael's, St. Michael's English Church on the right bank. You know, the president's house, which I don't think that meeting's there any longer. But, um, oh, by the way, we get these French people coming into the English-speaking meeting. And, like, they try and, they see the ad in, in the International Herald and, and try and come to the meeting thinking maybe their high school English could carry them, but they couldn't. You know what I'm saying? And it was, I felt like we were sending them out to die. You know, some of them are bulimics; they're starving themselves to death. And we, there was no French-speaking OA there at the time. And um, uh, so I'll tell you this story, and I'll tell you what happened in France. And uh, I, I get through asking at dinner, and I go to that St. Michael's Church. You know, they read how it works. Anybody want to say something? So my hand shoots up. First one, I want to be the star of the meeting. You know. I got something to tell you guys today. I'm abstinent today. So Morissette looks at me and goes, I'm abstinent today. Bob R. looks at me and goes, I'm abstinent today. And the NRX goes, I'm abstinent today. The whole group got abstinent on the same day, at the same time. It's a group miracle in France. <laughs> and I always said the greatest spiritual event in France is Lourdes. And uh, it was bizarre, and it's true. And since that day, there's now OA all over France, in French, because uh, eventually Natalie started a French group, and uh, I've been over here, I've a couple times in French, and um, 
And uh, actually, the French groups do it better than the English group because that's a transitory group. You know, people come and go in Paris and the English speaking. And the AA too, the same way. But the French OA is spread all over France. And last time I was in Barcelona, I went to Spanish OA, where I speak Spanish too and uh, pitch the Spanish. And it was wonderful, great experience. I had some good experiences. But anyway, uh, so from that little shaky, flaky group, we now have uh, OA in, uh, in France. And I got abstinent in Paris in the, with no real super strength around me like we have here in L.A. And, and I think the lesson for me was, you, one, you can get abstinent anywhere if you really want to be abstinent. And two, I was in the now. You know, I was not looking to be abstinent in the next number of years. I was not looking to get to any magic numbers and lose any amount of weight or this or that or, you know, speak a lot in a way or whatever the hell's happened over the years to me. But... I just wanted not to eat for that instant. You know, I just wanted to eat an abstinent meal. And I was truly in the now. And so basically, uh, that's what happened. And I got back, got a little... Uh, by that time, they had the Dignity and Choice pamphlet. I got a new sponsor. It was a little more flexible and old Edie. And uh, got on a couple of the other plans. And we don't even have food plans in OA anymore. I think House still tell how really Carl does, but... I don't really think it matters. I think, you know, my experience is i got to find a food sponsor and get a food plan that's sane and workable. But I highly recommend... Absent, I celebrated in October, and I lost the weight. And basically, been this, I've been passing for normal now for like 24 years, and I mean... Uh, a lot of people don't even know I was obese, and I got stretch marks to prove it. And I used to be the kind of guy with the three suits of clothes in the closet, like anorexic, passing for normal and out of control. And I've basically been the same size for 24 years. And, you know, Ethel Merman said I've been rich and I've been poor, rich is better. Well, I've been thin and I've been fat, and thin is better. But also more important is um, thin is not well. The real day of liberation came for me. When I was sitting in an old, uh, and it was an A, uh, it's the courtroom in Miami where I basically got sober, but I was sitting there, I used to get my abstinent meal from the Chinese restaurants, vegetables and meat and hold the cornstarch, no rice, rice was a binge for me one time, I, I wouldn't go near it, but late, uh, you know, I can usually handle it now in a restaurant, that shows you my food plan has changed over the years. I have to adapt it. It has to be. I have to be comfortable with it. I don't feel. I have. I don't feel. I should feel deprived. I don't feel. I should feel. I'm punishing. But I can't kid myself. You know, if I'm binging on sugar, I don't want sugar on my food plan. See, that's why I have a food sponsor to feed back my nonsense to me. Natalie's my food sponsor, the old timer. So uh, I was sitting in this AA clubhouse. I used to go to the AA meeting and get my food at the Chinese restaurant. Take it back to the AA. Uh, 12 step room and eat and have fellowship and I was sitting there after about and I, I, I can't I think it was about 2 or 3 weeks I've been doing I've gotten abstinent in France and come back to Florida and continue my abstinence the weight just came off it just came off you know and I was still running but not compulsively I was maybe down to like 4 miles or something you know nothing crazy you know normal like what a runner would do and um, I was sitting in the AA clubhouse eating this accident meal, and I just, it hit me like, I haven't thought about food in two weeks. You know, and that was the day of liberation for me. It wasn't any magic number I hit on my 
weighing. You know, I, I was taught weighing once a month. I still do that. I have the same scale. I weigh in at roughly the beginning of the month on the same scale, you know, with no clothes on in the morning before I eat. I was taught that, and I do it. And that's a reality check for me once a month. Some people say they can't deal with the scale. They have it in the house. They're going to jump on it every two days, every two hours. Well, to me, that's obsessive behavior. The obsession's obviously not removed. Uh, but if you can't have a scale in your house, don't have it in your house. I can't prescribe my abstinence or my food plan or my recovery for anyone else. I'll just tell you all that they used to say some things to me which pissed me off. But in retrospect, all the cute, as the French say, they were actually quite enlightened things. They used to say to me, Roy, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. And, uh, you know, for a long time, I wasn't a happy camper in recovery. I was known as Roy with the Resentments. That was my nickname in AA. And they used to say to me, Roy, if your program's not working, why don't you try Bill Wilson's? You know? I, I, that was annoying. That was annoying. But in retrospect, it's actually true. I uh, basically got abstinent the way it came off. And after, you know, I've had some rough times in, uh, in recovery. There was the period of the great resentments. I've had nothing but problems with money. I've had career disasters. I've had obsessions over women. I've had... I was a resentment hound, you know, I uh, always get resentment. And it just forced me to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the steps. And uh, I, I use a big book. I, uh, the Oilers is wonderful. I, I read this deck book. I, I like, like their comments on the traditions. I get a lot out of it. Same with uh, A12 and 12 Tests, Bill Wilson's commentaries on the steps and traditions. And I certainly think they're worth uh, listening to because at the time he was the most sober person. But for me, I found that the big book works. And what happens is this. If you want to know how to do an inventory, here's how you do an inventory. You get a big yellow pad and you start with your deepest, darkest secrets. The shit that you just want to go to the grave and not tell anyone. And in my case, that encompassed some... I, I mean, I don't want to go to my junk lot here, but I mean, I was in a cult when I was here. I'm a pretty weird dude, you know? And I had some stuff that was pretty humiliating and personal, but I had to be willing to put, start with that. You know, an old timer told me, you start with your deepest, darkest secrets, and how bad an inventory can it be? On the other hand, if you're withholding it, how good an inventory is ever going to be? So I start with secrets. I put down my secrets, fears and guilt, you know, and sometimes they overlap or they're repetitive, but it doesn't matter. As long as it's out there on paper, the big book says I cannot lead a double life. I cannot present one facade to the world, but deep down inside I hate myself for this and that. And then I go into resentments. What do I hate about other people, places, institutions, or myself? And, um, and then I do the columns. And I always add the... Uh, fourth column, which is not in the book, but the questions are in the book that I put in the fourth column. Where was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, afraid? Did I set the ball of fear rolling? Did I put myself, did I make a decision based on self and push my, myself in a position to be hurt? I answer that in the fourth column, which is not in the book, so take what you want to leave the rest. And then I always add the fifth column, which is, have I ever done this to another human being myself? No, I'm hating this guy for doing this. Have I ever done it myself to another human being? In my case, it's almost always been yes. Yes. And I went through that process, and what that made me realize is that I'm manifesting myself on my resentment list. 
you know, the psychologists call it the law of attraction. It's nothing new. A lot of people know about it. As you sow, so shall you reap. You know, um, anger begets anger. Uh, if you're in the mafia, chances are you're going to be bumped off by somebody else in the mafia. What a surprise, you know. When I was a drunkard my, and a binger, my friends were all my binge buddies or drinking buddies. So now I'm in recovery. Most of my good friends are in recovery. I will manifest myself on my resentment list. My character defects manifest myself, manifest themselves on my resentment list. If I'm angry, I'm going to pull in the angry people to me. As a sponsor once said to me, positive attracts positive, negative attracts negative, passive attracts aggressive. And so if I'm angry, who am I colliding with? Other angry people, you know. If I'm a thief, I'm going to fall in amongst thieves, you know. And I manifested myself. Every time I had a resentment, and I did that process with the columns, I realized I manifested myself. And then I go home for an hour, and I look at that list. And that's what the book says. It does... You know, if you look at the book, there's only like a couple paragraphs on the six and seven steps. And for years, I wondered if either Bill Wilson or God was on a coffee break when that section was written. But I later came to realize that the six and seven steps is written in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and nothing more than steps of contemplation. It says, take a look at this list. Look at this list carefully because it held the key to the future. That's what it says, a little throwaway line in the big book. I didn't understand that for years. But what happened is when I did that inventory properly, and I looked at that list, and you got all these angry assholes on your, on your resentment list, you've manifested yourself. Do you want these kind of people in your life? And the answer was, after contemplating, was no. And then it said, so then that means, well, I guess I better give up my anger. You know, because I manifested myself. And then I have to take that list. And I always recommend doing steps in conjunction with a sponsor because uh, this is a wee program. It's not meant to be done uh, in, in solitary usage. It really is. Ever since Eddie Thatcher took Bill Wilson through the steps in the hospital and he took Bob through the steps. Uh, when, if a sponsor knows what the hell they're doing, you will do a good inventory. And I manifested myself in this list. And, then I, and, I, and I, every time I do that thing with the five columns, I wind up with at least two men. Okay, you want two questions? Is that what you want? Yeah, okay. Uh, and I usually have an amend for the person with whom I have, against whom I have the resentment because I've, I've answered the questions of my part in it. And I usually have... In a fifth column, if I ever done it to anybody else, I got another amendment. So every inventory I've ever done usually comes up with at least two amendments, sometimes more, because I've repeated these incidents more than once. So the point is that if you work the steps, as laid out in the big book, my experience was the obsession was removed. When I'm telling you it was removed, no offense, and I don't want to sound too egotistical, but 99 of 100 OA meetings I go to, the person who has what I want is me, because I'm not thinking about food. I'm not worried. My mother's going to town next week. My issues are because I don't want to eat. You know, the obsession has been removed. I mean, I don't mean I don't get scared. I don't mean I don't get guilty. I don't mean I'm not an asshole and have to make amends now and then. I certainly haven't been raised to any sainthood. But I mean, like, the obsession's removed. I mean, my first reaction is not to eat over it. And believe me, I'm no saint. When I was 18 years on the program, I did something that could have put me in jail. Walter knows about it. 
You know, it, was, it wasn't like ripping off stuff. It was just, you know, my compulsive evil read a 300 pound brother said, yeah, sign this, don't worry about it. My friend will put it through. Well, his friend was a crooked administrator and he got in trouble. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do time and I signed something that wasn't true. And my first reaction was not to go eat over it. My first reaction was, well, if I go to the joint, how am I going to stay absent? And can I organize an OA group there, you know? Literally, you know, if you work the steps, the obsession is removed. And your first reaction to any kind of problem will not be the food. That is my experience. And that's what the book promises me. The book doesn't promise me I'm going to be thinking about food. I, I have to be worried about going to functions and, you know, because they're going to serve food or show food in movies or something. That's not what the book says. What the book says, if I relate myself properly to a higher power as expressed in the 12 steps, I will be given the strength to match calamity with serenity, which kind of implies what's coming for all of us. You know, life's not always roses. At least it hasn't been in my experience. Oh, i got to quit. You know, there, there are bad, good things and bad things, and I haven't had to eat over them in over 24 years, and I haven't even been driven to the obsession with food. You're talking about a guy with three size suits in his closet and stretch marks and all these sugar and diet. So basically, um, I'm very grateful uh, for the opportunity to share this story, and if there's any questions, I will entertain them. Thank you. <laughs> and now, Roy, will you kind of repeat the questions into the mic? Yes, I will. Yes, Gabriel. Thanks, Okay, Gabriel's question was, resentment's forced, did resentment's force you go deeper and deeper into the steps, and would you elaborate on that? Well, my first preliminary, fourth and fifth, was my first sponsor, who was a whack job, who I picked, you know, because positive attracts positive, negative attracts negative. I was a cult survivor. I picked a kind of a cult-like abusive guy as my first sponsor. It's not an accident. I've since forgiven myself. And, uh, I mean, when I say this, I, I don't feel he helped me stay sober. I feel I survived. And two of his sponsees committed suicide. That's the kind of people he was. And people were telling me, stay away from this guy. He's, you know, he's angry. He's screwed up, you know. So the point is, I did some preliminary step work with this guy, which was basically getting some secrets down on paper. But I hadn't really thoroughly gone through that process where, where, where the columns, you know. It, let me put it this way. It took about... Five years in recovery, you know, abstinent, sober, but collecting some new resentments based on my character defects. And to where I got to the point when I was seven years on the program, my second sponsor, Kurt B. down in Boca Raton, Florida, said, I've never met anybody seven years sober so unhappy before. And I didn't take offense. I knew he was telling the truth. So I had to hold on to some defects and manifest some resentments. And what that forced me to do was go deeper into the steps. So I redid my inventory. I told him all my secrets, Kurt B. I put down my resentments, and my first sponsor was on there, okay, because of this shit he pulled. And, uh, but I manifested these resentments. And then I did the bit, what's my part in it? And he, and that's why sponsors and types, he cut me short and he said, sorry, but your problem is this, this, and this, and you want to be this, this, and this, and therefore you hate this, this, and this, and this, and this. And he got right to the heart of it, you know? So it pained, Bill Wilson has something that Bill sees it, uh, called the utility of pain. 
You see, it's not all the times I talk my way out of, the, uh, of stuff that got me on the program. It's hitting bottom. It's pain. Pain forces one to either, you're either going to get, you're going to relapse into the food, or in my case, food or alcohol, or you're going to read different steps and get close to your higher power. Bill Wilson calls it turning more to the light. He went through probably all-time record. My friend Teresa in Paris, she's called going through the wall. She said, ah, these newcomers are wonderful. I love them, but they haven't been through the wall yet. Bill Wilson had 11 years of clinical depression. If he was alive today, they would have been trying to shoot him full of Prozac and every other thing. But he didn't have it. And I think it's good he didn't have it. It just forced him to redo the steps. He got Father Ed Dowling as a sponsor. He got his head shrunk by Dr. Harry Tebow. He, he had to rework his program. He still had depression a lot, but he, it took, he got through it. I, my resentments forced me to redo my inventory, do some amends I really didn't want. The, the most crushing amends for me were not like rip-off, paying back money amends. It was usually an apology to someone I felt had wronged me more than I'd wronged him. And what that does is inflates my ego. Because when I write that fifth column and see that I've done the same thing to somebody else, and I say, well, I can't judge him. I've done the same thing as somebody else. If he deserves to get shot, then I deserve to get shot. Well, I don't want to get shot. So i got to forgive him, forgive myself, make him have to clean up the crap. And what that does is deflates my ego. There's nothing like apologizing to somebody you hate for ego deflation, I promise you. I've made playback plenty. I went into the Mill Valley market, you know, compulsive over here. I used to rip off their food. Here's a check I used to steal from. I know. I read about you guys, you know. I've never had problems with that kind of amends. But apologizing to somebody I've hated has always been the, the tough amends for me because it's ego deflating. Any other questions? We're out of time. We're out of time? Yeah, we have to do the seven position. Okay. Well, we go to 625 now. Go to 620? All right. Okay. Thank you.